Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. And I should mention that uh, next week we will be off. Uh, there'll be no weekly update. It'll be Purim Day. Mayor Weingarten will be sitting in for me, and I thank him in advance. And I'm assuming that if all goes according to schedule, uh, that on the uh, 5th of March, which is two weeks from today, we'll reconvene with the next weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning to you, Nachum. Hard, hard. We should also remember that today is also the yard site of Esther Amalka. 7th of Adar? Yep. It's both, and that's why it's a big day for school. So, Wow. And my mother was born on the 12th of Adar, and hence her name, Esther. Amazing. Um... Our, our triplets were also born on the twelfth of Adar, but I don't want to turn this into a uh, you know, yes, I, it's right. into a whole personal greeting type of show here. It is hard to believe, isn't it, that last year the week of Purim ended with the closing of our shuls. Again, it was that Friday that the bulk of them did in fact close, and here we are a year later. And I really hope, although the Pesach uh, holiday will appear and drop differently this year. We'll have shul and likely uh, the ability to have some guests at our Seder. Uh, but I just hope, I hope things continue to improve. It is hard to believe that it's a year later. Um, you you once indicated that it seems you go through the week and all of a sudden it's Shabbos again. And I, <laughs> ever since you said that, I think of that every Thursday and Friday. My gosh. <laughs> Here I tell people, I, I know I make Abdullah Saturday night and I make Kiddush Friday night. I just don't know what happens in between. <laughs> it certainly seems that every way. Every day is Blur's Day. It's re- very good. I like that one. Pretty amazing. What do you remember about the trip we took with Rush Limbaugh 28 years ago to Israel? Uh, I remember it very well. I've been thinking about it ever since he got ill. And, uh, the you know, all of the people who, who warned me before he went and all sorts of accusations against the guy. He, he was a philo-Semite. He was um, knowledgeable. He was everything but the way he is portrayed. And you know, I remember during one night we were talking, and he said, look, I'm an entertainer. I have to put on. But he himself was very shy. If you remember, he would retire early in the evenings. He, sure. the, he, he didn't look for uh, adulation. He was happy to get into, into details. If you remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls, sure. his father was uh, obsessed with them. And um, when we met with Rabin, what I remember most is that he took out two Cuban cigars, right. and knowing that Rabin smoked, and he he said to him, "You know these," and they were very expensive ones. And Rabin grabbed—you couldn't even see it; it was a flash of light, and they were in his pocket. <laughs> he was so happy with it. And uh, and then we went on to have a really wonderful discussion. And Rabin was very impressed by him, that his knowledge and uh, you know the. No bravado. He was. It was a perfect uh, week with him, and he remained a, remained a great friend, speaking to tens of millions of people, and conveyed a message that you know few people did or, or influenced so many because it was. Uh, he was very sympathetic both to Jews and to Israel. Yeah, no question about they it. They can differ with him on a lot of issues, and people, you know, can have criticisms of him, like of anybody. But uh, he he was really um, mentioned. I remember at my daughter's wedding, as you remember, he he um, he went off on the side with Hillary. 
Clinton right, right. and apologized to her about having mentioned um, Chelsea, her daughter. He said children should not have been brought into it, and he apologized for mentioning her in uh, one of his uh, political uh, onslaughts. Yeah, that was an interesting moment. I wonder, I wonder about the aftermath of his passing, how different it might have been if things were a little bit more sane in this country. And I'm saying it that way because um, the hatred, uh, I mean, there's plenty of love. You just indicated a reason to, you know, to admire him, uh, multiple reasons to admire him. But the hatred that's out there right now, and I, I just wonder if it would have been like that 10 years ago. Even I, I did a nice tribute to him yesterday and spoke about some of the things he had done for us here, etc. And uh, my listeners... I never expected my listeners to react. Many of them, of course, were complimentary and, and, and recalled them with fondness. But the, the vitriol out there is really, really rough these days. The climate of the time, and it's, you know, and, and again, it's legitimate to criticize him. There are a lot of views and things that right. he, like anybody else, look at the, you know, Governor Cuomo, anybody is, uh, you know, uh, can be criticized and it's legitimate. There are reasons, you know, after adulation that uh, he got an Emmy and all that rest. And then you know, have this this immediate uh, explosion of, of um, feelings. And, and again, it's not a question of legitimacy. It's the climate that, that we live in and the tone in which things are, are being done um, that, you know, he died. Now it's not a question that he represents a challenge to people's views or whatever. You just, uh, you can remember the good and people can acknowledge the bad if they don't agree with something that he said. You know, one of the things that I remember when when you and I first met was how often you were on stage in debates against, you know, people from both the right and the left, you know, people who were, mm-hmm. people who did not feel the way you felt about Israel and had an opinion uh, and one you felt worthy of discussing. And I just wonder today if, you know, someone like yourself is an example, you know, a defender of Israel, someone who's who's there with, you know, potent points about, you know, why America, for instance, should be, you know, a strong ally of Israel, etc. I don't even know if people would take the stage to discuss these things with you anymore. Like, it seems you can't, unless you, you know, agree with somebody these days, that you can't even engage in a regular civil conversation with them, especially publicly these days. Do you think about that, that that some of the things you've done in the past would not even be welcome anymore? I do think about, I do think about what is going on, and I worry very much about what will be coming uh, and that uh, the nature of the vitriol that, that uh, we hear and, and see, whether it's regarding Israel or Jews or society as a whole, um, uh, I, I, it is true that I don't know that the same kind of fora could exist, and you have a media that is so polarized as well, yeah. and the diminution of the, of the media in general, and the lack of faith that people have in everything, in government, in politics, in, in, in uh, the media, in the clergy, in academia, uh, young people have, have uh, turned against them. There's no s- respect for authority. And in terms of, of the divergence of views, and unless you say really extreme things, unless you're willing to go from extreme left or extreme right, and it doesn't matter whether things are true, and it doesn't matter whether they're disproven later on, that's what gets the attention. And the you know they play the media plays them, builds them up, and then attacks them and destroys them. Right. Look at political leaders who are, you know, come as a flash in a pan, and and then all of a sudden disappear. Every Israeli guy who announces for prime minister or right. woman gets eight seats, ten seats, and then all of a sudden you turn around. They can't make the threshold. So it's a 
you know, it is it, it is an unstable time. And COVID has really come, you know, as part of this perfect storm with economic and social dislocation. Uh, so it's things that people should think about, and, and we have to address collectively. What, what will the world look like when this is over? Yes. What will our institutions, our schools, our, our community instructions, institutions, our schools? We don't know. And, and I'll move on in a second, but the point you're making about government officials and, and the distrust uh, I'm not saying this hasn't happened before. Obviously, <laughs> I always like to say it's all everything's happened before. But when you see, a, we're both New York City residents, you and I, and when you see the mayor of the city of New York with the outspoken language against the governor of the state of New York, I'm not saying again that this hasn't happened before, but just the, even even in the in the relationship that we would think would be important to maintain, just to run the city and state properly, just to give confidence to people, to residents that, you know, we've got your mm-hmm. back, we've got your back. And then it turns into personal attacks. And you say to yourself, like, you know, with all this mudslinging that's going on, you think it's only in the media. Our public officials are doing it to each other. They are. And it becomes a model for, for people. It's why they distrust, dislike, and have no confidence in uh, in in the system as a whole, in many regards, it did fail people. But when when they made comments, even about the Jewish community, when uh, you know people launched attacks that are or would otherwise have not even been conceivable, yeah. and it's not always it's not anti-Semitism. Right. Sometimes it's it's a lack of regard, and right. sometimes it's, but it does a lot of damage. Yeah. It's sometimes just a regular lack of respect. It doesn't have to be that anybody hates Jews. Mm-hmm. They just approach it with such a terrible, ter- from such a terrible angle. All right, uh, the call to the prime minister has finally taken place. What could you tell us about the conversation between the president of the United States and the prime minister of Israel? It's not true that he called collect. <laughs> uh, so, so put that to rest. But it, it was important. I know people, and especially the media, try to portray this as a breakdown in the relationship, a, a message of a lack of confidence. There were no other Middle East leaders that were called, and they said that, you know, the first one that would be called would be Netanyahu. Traditionally, Israel is amongst the first countries to get called, but I, uh, I think that the, there are many world leaders who are still waiting for the call. He got it. It was a very friendly call. I've spoken to people who are familiar with it. it covered a lot of issues, went almost an hour and, oh, wow. you know, they know that. each other for a long time, for decades. And it's, I'm not going to say the relationship was always a smooth one. It wasn't. But they respect each other. I think they like each other. I've heard in, on, in the receptions that the vice president, when he was vice president, he used to give every year at the uh, Admiral's Mansion. Uh, he often would make references to BB, you know, uh, Mr. Biden would have a tendency, you know, to wander off on his comments. And... Um, so, but I do think that there is a, a begrudging mutual respect, and and a uh, and it was certainly reflected in the call, and it dealt with Iran extensively, and the president complimented Bibi on the handling of the virus inoculations, as something that we're still wrestling with here. Um, so I hope it at least put to rest this issue. It doesn't mean that all the problems are resolved and all the issues are. Um, you know, not going to be there after the call. There, everything stays the same. If you remember when he was vice president on his last visit, there was an incident, and um, some low-level Pakid uh, announced the expansion or building in some settlement. Right. And you know, he skipped the dinner that was had, but then he wouldn't have the meeting with the with the prime minister. So I think uh, it's it, 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 well, if it was intended to be then. 
than it was, or if it was moved up to put to rest these these uh, silly rumors. After his spokespeople kept saying they're going to do it, they're going to do it. Just you know, he's he hasn't. Um, he's doing it periodically. He has a lot of other issues, I guess, that he's uh, addressing too. On that incident, by the way, you have to remember he was representing the you know the Obama administration, and uh, no, and we're, we're not a hundred percent sure that what action he was he was asked to take was being done voluntarily or he was being forced because or, of the or if he did everything he was asked to do. Right. Correct. Um, so now the call has taken place. Is that the, I mean I assume that uh, once it was announced this week that there's a uh, a restart in negotiations with Iran, I assume the president felt that he could not make that announcement or have the uh, his representative make that announcement without speaking to the prime minister first. Is that a good, uh, it, does that work out that there's no way that this announcement would have been made without a personal call from the president to the prime minister? Well, they're not restarting the talks. They, they are talking about the readiness to restart talks. You know, there is still a big difference that the administration said we talk first and then we remove sanctions and sort of doing it without precondition. The uh, Iranians are insisting sanctions be lifted uh, first. And if you look at some of the developments and the statements that were made over this week by uh, Rouhani to, to uh, the president of Iran, to Merkel, um, and was really very uh, tough and said it's unchangeable. You know, the Europeans and others want the U.S. They want to see Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE brought into the talks. Iranians have said no way, and they're not willing to um, to accept it. We see that the European foreign ministers, the key ones, Germany, France, Britain, met, and then they talked to Blinken, and that's why these statements that uh, came out. And remember, we have facing a deadline in 48 hours on the 21st of February, uh, which is the deadline sent by the Parliament of, of Iran, that they have to go to 20%, that they have to chuck literally all the restrictions, which they are doing anyway slowly, but this would be a, this was supposed to be the, the deadline. I, Iran says, well, we're willing to, you know, not to do it, but first you have to do um, all of these things, in, including which is primarily lifting the uh, sanctions. He, he, they are in desperate needs of funds, both for their foreign operations, for Hezbollah, Hamas, etc., but also domestically. They, they are um, looking at um, uh, various initiatives. They, they met with the Japanese prime minister, defense ministers, uh, and their defense minister met and announced uh, joint uh, efforts. They, they conducted exercises with the Russian Navy, for several days this past week. It ended, on, uh, I think, on Wednesday. Um, you know, it was supposed to be rescue missions and things of that kind, but it, it, all, all of these are demonstrative acts to send a message. The, um, the, if you notice that the report came out also this week that Qasem Soleimani had set up centers to spy on the Zionists, meaning the Jews in Iran, and although they've been very loyal citizens, and there's, I think, less than 10,000 there, but he had set up numerous centers to, to spy on them if anybody had contacts with Israel, anything of that kind. So on, and there's only a few of the things that come to mind. of All the things that were going on uh, during just this past week, and the, you know, the United States keeps asking them to refrain from some of these actions, and yet they're telling, and Grossi, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, is going there tomorrow uh, because they're not allowed to inspect certain places. Now they're saying that their immediate sanction, Iran, sanction will be 
um, no more snap inspections. Well, they don't really allow that many <laughs> yeah. snap inspections. There's no so, access I mean, there it's anyway. not really giving up much. Well, okay, so I'll phrase it differently. The Biden mm-hmm. administration has offered to formally restart nuclear talks with Iran. But those, yes, nego- but those negotiations, no, I, mean, I get it. If I, I was wrong, I should have made sure to mention that word. But, okay, the offer is out there. Would that offer have been made without a call to Netanyahu? Uh, I, I, I actually, I don't know, because they have been saying it all along before the call. But there have been exchanges the, the, on the intel, intelligence level. You know, the National Security Advisor, the Mossad leader, have been in Washington since the election meeting with the, the Biden people. So I think that there have been a lot of exchanges. They know Israel's position and that of the Saudis and the UAE and other allies in the region that there should not be Egypt, uh, uh, that there shouldn't be talks until the conditions are met because they are seeing on the front line the provocative actions of Iran, right. some of which you know I just indicated, but yeah. I mean the list is is virtually endless. And you have to look at the statements they're making, and including the supreme leader who has taken charge over this uh, nuclear the program about the future course of of the program. They also look at an election in May and and uh, are looking what the consequences um, uh, will be internally. It'll be a hard liner no matter what. So it's. It, I can't answer the question because I'm not sure. Right. I think um, I, I am sure that it came up in the discussions, and I hope that uh, if they hold the line, that there has to be compliance first. At least that would be that would be closer to the position that Israel and others could live with. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world and web at AlchemSegal.com and the AlchemSegal Network, and of course, any beloved NSN app. If it wasn't for Purim, do you think this lockdown of the airports in Israel uh, would not have extended until March the 6th? you think they did this because they're anticipating a lot of activity over the holiday? Because I would think with all the vaccinations and the the way things are going in Israel, I would think that they'd be much more anxious to not wait another two weeks and to get everything open. I, I don't know that it's just because of Purim. They had talked about a lockdown on Purim all along. Right. Um, but... You know, this is a. It's very costly. It's. It, there are planes flying into Israel periodically, but the um, the toll not only on tourism, which is obvious, but in the high tech industry and so many other things that are being postponed because yeah. you need to have face to face meetings. So I think that a lot of it has to do with the importation of the foreign strains. As you know, they keep coming up with new strains or, or derivative strains of the of the U.K. or the South African or merged ones now that I, I've seen reports of. Uh, so Israel wants to reach that level of inoculation, which they're rapidly approaching, where they can open up the society, they, whether it's herd immunity or not. Uh, I'm not a, enough of a medical expert to, to comment on. <laughs> Everybody seems to have a view of it. Um, but they, they, this was intended before, and the fact is that it's not going to really open up. It'll be very limited, whatever does take place, until after Pesach, I would say. And again, like you said last week, we're hoping that once we get past Pesach and we're into you know deep into April, that we're going to see some type of you know regular activity. Again, maybe not 100%, but hopefully at that point, things will start to move. Those who live in Israel that I've spoken to are getting the feeling 
that they just don't know what the quarantine issue will be for foreigners like us. They, they may Israel could keep that in place. Everything else, it seems to them, by the time Pesach ends, is basically going to be you know a reopened society there. Again, to what extent, we don't know. Um, and I hope that's true. I really hope that's true. You always talk about the pent-up energy that everyone has to just travel and go places and do things. And, you know, like I said, you hit that one-year point, and I think it just becomes uh, more and more exacerbated. Uh, what could you tell us about the Israel-Syria prisoner swap? That a young woman uh, wandered across the border, and the question is, how did she get across the border without being detected? Yeah. Uh, at a time when there is very heightened alert along the borders, which was talk about there were huge exercises as you know this week the israeli air force together with ground forces and others targeted 3000 capacity to hit 3000 targets in lebanon and syria as a message to hezbollah within a 24 hour period uh, because of the huge infrastructure of hezbollah in lebanon and the missiles and the danger because they have now the guidance systems etc so there has been there has been a heightened alert along the border, and yet she somehow just wandered off, was caught. They understood that she was. I'm, I'm sure there must be some extenuating circumstance involving her. Um, and uh, Israel, as you know, never leaves anybody behind, and traded two shepherds uh, who had who had come across the border also. So she uh, lucked. She lucked that that Israel happened to have people that wanted to go back to Syria. Without so the, without, they were able to trade for, but I'm sure that there, Israel doesn't hold people because they were shepherds crossing, you know, just with their flocks. Understood. Because there must have been some suspicion. Yes, but they they and, and the Russians negotiated it and returned to to Putin directly, and to, they uh, made the deal. There are reports that there are additional clauses in there that have not been made public yet. All right, you know the rumors that were going on. The rumors going around were that. Um remains of certain Israelis were going to be as you know part of this deal. There was even a rumor flying about Ellie Cohen's remains uh, going back to Israel. How did all that, I mean, where did that come from? So there are reports that Russian troops were seen in cemeteries and blocked them off as military areas, uh, areas that we believe, or it was believed, that uh, perhaps the uh, the rest of the, the soldiers from Sultan Yaakob uh, would be located there. As you know, I went to Syria to meet Assad, and largely on this issue, um, they were not willing to negotiate the Eli Cohen. Um, they're returning the body of Eli Cohen, something Israel has tried to do and wanted to do for a long time, and we believe that they probably relocated the body. The um, uh, Assad told me he did not know where they were, wow. but it seems that the Russians are doing DNA testing of... Um, uh, people that have been exhumed, the bodies that were remains that were exhumed, in order to try and uh, find them. Uh, again, until we see the results and we know for sure, there have been uh, false reporting over many years about this. But the, um, there are people who claim to have witnessed the uh, exhumation and the fact that the area was blocked off by Russian soldiers and no one allowed was admitted into it. And more than that, we just don't know. I, I, it, people, we don't. We don't need to know. We don't know. And I think we should just uh, 
give him a chance to see what what is happening. As you know, Assad right. this week, it was determined that he controls about two-thirds of the country, right. but only about 15% of his border. Hamas controls about 20%. The Turks control a big percentage. The uh, situation in, in Syria itself is still very tense uh, with the everybody against each other, Russia, Turkey, Iran, working together in the Astana process against the U.S., but fighting each other there, trying to drive each other out, certainly trying to get rid of the Iranians. Um, and the the Turks have, have created the, a safe zone, which they control. And they also have millions of, of uh, refugees there, uh, which is always a problem because they can weaponize the flow of refugees into Europe and elsewhere, and because there are millions in, in Turkey as well. The economic situation, obviously, in Syria is uh, is terrible. And you have the the presence there of militia, and the the word is that under the cover of COVID, Iran has created many more militia groups, these radical Shia groups, which are in Iraq, which are in Syria, which are in Yemen, which are in many other places, Um, but so have other groups done the same. And in Syria, the Hezbollah has uh, come into the areas closer to Israel. This is what Iran has been trying to do, putting their own troops, putting their militia, often dressed as Syrian soldiers. Uh, so they could be within striking distance uh, of the border. Why it's just part why Israel has taken all these preventative and assertive message um, measures to send a message that you know you've tried on the ground with bombs, you tried to dig under, you tried to send rockets over. You have no options. If and the Hezbollah does not want a war now, they can't afford it, and the people of Lebanon don't want a war, and their popularity goes down uh, because. It's the people who will pay the price, and and the the demonstration of how devastating the retaliatory strike will be by Israel is not a message lost on the on the people of Lebanon. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, a month from Tuesday, it's election day in Israel. Anything new over the last seven days since we last spoke? Yeah, they're planning the next election for September. <laughs> You're not serious. It's I a hope. growth industry. Anybody who can wants to invest, it's uh, better than GameStop. You invest. I hear that some of the I hear that some of the campaign experts of the United States are making money off of this one. They did, and they, uh, one of them, you know, fired the Lincoln Group, and uh, you know, it's it, it, it isn't a healthy situation. We've just done a series of webinars with the candidates, and um, you know that the, the the numbers keep vacillating of who will cross the threshold, but we know that the polling in Israel is notorious, that people tell the truth to the pollsters and then lie at the polls, as I've said to you for many years. So don't buy necessarily the specific things. We see that Netanyahu remains very strong despite all of the complications and uh, the difficulties that uh, he has. But nobody else really has emerged to mobilize the people. The left is is divided as well. You saw that the Arabs walked out of the Labor Party, the Israeli Arabs, in protest against um, the chairperson's uh, choosing of of an Israeli Arab to be on the list. Uh And you know, so it's not it's not even a left right split. It's not it's it's there's divisiveness and it divides into one two one thing: pro BB, anti BB bloc. Right. Wow. Uh, is Israel going to have a big anti-vaxxer problem as they try to continue? We just talked about reopening a few minutes ago, but I, I, I forgot to ask you about that. Is there going to be a significant part of the population that's going to refuse to be vaccinated? There's a significant part of population in every country that is refusing, including here, including health workers and others. And people are talking about mandating it. There are firms that have mandated it. Uh, 
I, I, I myself got a call here at my house with somebody from anti-vaxxers who were, you know, trying to mobilize support. There are always these kind of outliers who who uh, are putting people's lives at risk. They're not scientists. They're not doctors. Are, are there risks? There's risks in everything. But yeah. the the risk of people getting sick, how many more people have to die? How many of our leaders, how many of the people, young people now, more than 50% of the cases in Israel are under 50 years of age or under 60. And uh, and, and little children are getting it. Mothers are, are, um, pregnant women are being brought in and their children born. um, And often the mothers are sick and in some cases have died because of the illness, not because of the vaccination. Is it 100% perfect? No. Is, but it, it, it is so far ahead of any option. And the vax, anti-vaxxers are often ignorant, and they're certainly doing tremendous damage. Look at all the calls of, of the Dolan for people to get vaccinated. There's no excuse unless there's a health reason and that people should consult their doctors about, about it. But, yes, I think that there is a problem, that there's a significant part of populations generally who, because of the Internet messages and the mobilization and the radicals who who express themselves, I understand the the expressions of concern. I don't understand why people are putting other people's lives at risk. And it's funny because usually the anti-vaccine campaign is aimed at protecting, quote-unquote, children. I'm not questioning whether they really are. I understand the sincere effort to do that. But here, you're not even. Nobody's even uh, suggesting that anybody under 18 at the moment be vaccinated. They're not even uh, uh, considering that. This is uh, more of an adult thing. And uh, if you look at the statistics in places like Israel, I mean, there may be an isolated case or two where someone's had either a bad reaction or a terrible uh, sickness based on the vaccine. But boy, as you just said, few and far between, to say the least. Um, what did you think of pri- of President Biden's? suggestion that the uh, Chinese genocide against the Uyghurs is an indication of different norms in that country. Wasn't that disturbing to you? I don't think most people understand what's going on with the Uyghurs and the um, who have been persecuted for many years. It's a Muslim population. And China accused them of being involved in a revolution. I mean, there has been violence there. Um, but to... The, the different characterizations that exist. He, the president had a long talk with uh, President Xi of China and I think was trying to moderate some of the language uh, with his assertion, but I'm sure that that will come under fire. But the, the, the Democrats right now are acting in a more disciplined way than, than usual, mm. and I think people are giving the president a lot of leeway. Um, you know, there have been appointments that are of concern. There are uh, many things, many issues, but you know, I think he still has the honeymoon period, um, and then we will see more people start coming out, as what happens with every president after, the they say, the first 100 days. So if he would have made that statement half a year from now, you're saying the reaction would have been much different? It's very possible. There are There is a lot of uh, concern in Congress and elsewhere around the world about the, the uh, Uyghurs and the refugees and the establishment of these, quote, training camps and people being forcibly right. uh, brought to re-education centers. I mean, there are a lot of reports about it, and um, yes, the, I think the reaction will be different. Finally, Malcolm, and i, I got to wrap up uh, quicker this week because Rabbi Yudin has a, a, a long, rightfully so, a long agenda because he's including Purim in this morning's 
presentation. Uh, the Equatorial Guinea move of the embassy to Jerusalem. Now, many of us might think that this is an insignificant story, but frankly, the reason I thought this was significant is because we all wondered what would happen after January 20th. Would countries around the world hesitate to take action that they that they would have um, quickly taken during a Trump administration. And this may not be a big deal, but I feel that, that you know, this might be an indication that there are countries ready to do so. So Equatorial Guinea is actually a unique instance. Um, you know, when Kosovo did it, the established relations, you see the press hardly even mentioned it, some of the others. Um, and there are big ones in the offing. The big biggest fish, obviously, is Saudi Arabia. Right. But I think that we, I know that there are talks going on with others, and I'm sure this administration will will want to be able to to show that it kept the momentum. They've said they will keep the momentum of the um, Abraham Accords. Although, as we know, the um, relationship with Saudi Arabia, with UAE, with others, that he's taken measures, uh, and there are 27 members of the Senate, led by Senator Inhofe, uh, moved against the. Um, decision of the Trump administration regarding Western Sahara, which is unfortunate, and Morocco is a great ally of ours, and this is a, it's a complicated issue, but I hope that they won't undo it, and the same thing with the uh, arms sales to UAE and uh, some of the things with Saudi Arabia. Uh, we need good relations with these countries, especially given Iran's aggressiveness. I think it enhances Israel's role. Um, Equatorial Guinea is different. I was actually there at the invitation of the president to attend the uh, organization African Unity. And when the Iranians and Palestinians saw me in the room, they, they went nuts. Oh, that, I, remember you, I remember you telling us the story. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't start the meeting until, until I left. Right. I didn't leave. And right. then finally uh, uh, they came, the president came, and he was humiliated and embarrassed by it. Um, but that, that was an hour and a half late in starting with all the heads of state there and just because this delegation was there, uh, but that's that's for the book. But the um, <laughs> the interesting thing is that Equatorial Guinea has this huge hospital complex manned by Israelis with kosher kitchens, with facilities there that are really remarkable, um, and they've had a, a, a long relationship, informal, with uh, Israelis in Israel. I think there are a thousand Israelis uh, living there. Uh, it's it's a country with with wealth. It's it's um, come under fire because of corruption, other things as uh, others. But it's uh, I, I think there are many other African countries. I know that their leaders have spoken to us about it. Are chomping at the bit to to expand their relationship with with Israel uh, and to visit and to benefit from especially the high tech, agri tech, AI, so many other areas that they see as as valuable and important. So each each additional brick is important as you build the wall of the the structure of relationships. The Mediterranean Initiative, which is you know I've worked on for ten years, the the Gulf, so many potential, so much potential, and s- such benefits that can be derived from it. So I hope the new administration will uh, enhance this and and help expand it because it's going to serve everybody's purpose. We can we can change the map uh, if this thing goes to. It's full fruition that I think is possible. Pretty. I just want to remind everybody of one thing that, you know, the Allah is that if you read the Megillah just as an historic document, then you're not Yotza with the mitzvah. You have to think of its contemporary significance. 
And if people read it and over Shabbos look at it, you will see how many messages. If you want to look at the source of anti-Semitism, call Zanishavili. Look what Haman did. Look at so many lessons. And I know you don't have time now, but it's, it really is important that people understand uh, how much we can learn. And that's why Pajat Zahar, we remember, we have to learn the lessons. It's not just a rote uh, observance. 100% well said. Take this opportunity to wish you a happy Purim. Let's hope that as uh, we observe Purim, we see a, a reopening of society uh, one year later. Amen. And uh, we'll speak, please God, two weeks from today. And, and I, I wish you a sober and, and happy Purim. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. Uh, this, this year, I think it'll be a sobering experience. Uh, I thank Malcolm Honline, He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos here at JM in the AM.